Yeah, well, that's one of our signature tunes. We've got quite a few nowadays. Uh, we just started this week, in fact, a very funky signature tune uh, for the Alec Hogg Show. Uh, we've got some musicians with us today. Uh, Sean Peche will be coming on a little bit later. Last time I saw him, he was playing drums for me. So uh, he's a, a musician of note. David, you, you're an artist rather than a musician, aren't you? Yeah, but I'm trying to get my... I, I, I'm still not too, it's still not too late for me to be a rock star. So I decided while I'm in lockdown, I'm going to learn how to play a keyboard, <laughs> compose songs. <Yeah>. And <laughs> no, come on. This we got to hear. This is a scoop of the, of the, of the uh, highest order. What keyboard, what, uh, what kind of a keyboard did you get? One that plays itself or do you have to actually press any, any of the buttons? So you press the keys, but it's a Yamaha. And they're going real cheap, and they're easy. And uh, I've decided, look, I've got, I've got to get my brain to do some things new, you know. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm teaching myself the chords and how to read music. I did, I did play when I was a very young person, and gave it up to play rugby. And that was a bad choice because I was never going to be a rugby man. <laughs> David, uh, I, I thought you were more the footballer than a than a rugby uh, player. You know, Alec, very briefly. And for those older people on the uh, who are listening will appreciate that. When I was in the Air Force, I was a 17-year-old. My flight sergeant was one person by the name of Frick Dupria. The great Frick Dupria was flight sergeant of Store W. And he was on his way to to the to uh, Australia. You know, he was a springbuck. And anyway, we had a practice. And he said to me, at the practice, because at the air depot, you know, we all went there. And he said to me, come, fight me. I looked at him, I said, you're out of your head. I said, that was the last time I ever touched a rugby ball. I went down to the lower field and started to play soccer, yeah, football, and never touched a rugby ball again. Uh, there was no ways I was going to clash with Frick. And he was such a gentleman. He was such a lovely person. Anyway. What so a that story. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> David, the, the, the big story on the investment markets of the past week has been SoftBank uh, punting punting mm. nasdaq shares pushing yep. them up to 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 astronomical uh levels ah we got we got a we we got someone else full would you mind just switching off your camera just for a moment we'll bring you in in a, a few minutes there we go sure okay uh Phil's our second guest today in fact maybe i should do that rather than just tell you who's coming up we've got phil craig who you saw there very briefly uh he is part of the whole advocacy group for Cape Independence. We'll talk to him a little bit later. Then we've got, uh, yeah, and Dave, they've done, a, they've done research. Gareth von Onselen did it. 37% of people who live in the Cape want independence. 47% say they should have a referendum. I think 89% of the Freedom Front uh, voters say they want independence for sure, tomorrow. <laughs> so we'll find out from Phil how, how, how uh, value that is. And then Ernest Kaplan will be with us around about uh, 12.30. Uh, he is, well, for my money anyway, South Africa's top uh, tech analyst. He has been ranked on the Financial Mail uh, for 15 years now on the top analysts. And uh, he's always steered us in the right direction when it comes to tech issues. He's going to be talking about something that you and I'll be touching on in a moment. And then also, um, no doubt, the, the Altron listing of Bytes UK. I don't know if you've been mm. following that, Dave, but mm, quite exciting, that one. And then uh, Sean Pesce will be uh, joining us from London 
to talk about value investing. He's one of those diehards like Pete Fulion. Uh, and we'll see what Sean thinks. I guess value the value guys are feeling a little bit stronger now, given what has happened uh, on NASDAQ in the past couple of days. But let's start there. Let's start with uh, Mr. Son and SoftBank and the $100 billion fund, which he then has created a equity fund, which has been punting on NASDAQ uh, by buying uh, well, uh, options on some of those uh, single stop, single stock futures in a way, I suppose we, we know it very well in South Africa uh, and pushed those share prices way too high. Uh, and we've seen a little bit of a retraction in some of them. Yeah. It's, uh, we've, been, we've been talking on this show, Dave, you mm -hmm. and I for a while about why have the share prices gone up so strongly and I guess now we have a reason. It's no one, there was a suspicion that uh, there was option trade, not, well, not a suspicion, the evidence was there in the number of options that were being written. Alec, it's massive. And for option traders, these kind of numbers were quite scary. Now, very briefly, and I hope I can get this uh, across in an understandable way, an option is nothing more than an option. You know, it's an option to buy something, a share, at a at a certain price somewhere down the line. For example, you might uh, might be three-month option, a six-month option, or even a year option. So if you want to buy a share, um, you can go to an options trader and they will uh, issue you that option um, and charge you a premium. Now, of course, what happens, say, uh, what happens is if that share price starts to rise, first of all, when you write an option, you have to take some protection because there's a good chance that that option price could be reached, in which case the person will exercise the option against you and you have to sell that person the shares or give that person the shares. So you take out insurance along the way. And you along the way, you'll say, well, uh, you know, th these are all the Greek letters that uh, Buffett always refers to. You know, there are various descriptions about um, how much risk you need to provide for or how much insurance you have to provide for. So along the way, you keep taking insurance. But as those shares start to rise, so you have to take more insurance. But what's happening is that the insurance you're buying keeps going up and you're pushing the share price up as well. And then you start to panic and start to buy more options. So the massive amount of options that were bought, which we now uh, assume or uh, attribute now to uh, SoftBank have caused absolute chaos uh, in the market and, um, you know, have caused almost the equivalent of a squeeze, not a bear squeeze. This is a bull squeeze where the option writers have had to take a huge amount of protection and buy lots of, you know, buy massive amounts of shares in order to protect themselves in case those options are exercised. So that's simply what's uh, uh, led to this. Of course, when share prices start to fall for whatever reason, they might have reached that uh, excess level, then you get the opposite happening where you now start to unwind your insurance, which can you know, accelerate on itself and cause kind of big drops. So that's what we faced with this. And it, it gives explanation to why we've seen these massive price increases way, way above perhaps even some of the good earnings numbers that we've seen. So where does this settle? We don't know. We're two days into it. Today is a holiday in the United States. 
So we've still got to wait for for them to come back to work tomorrow. We'll see whether or not this is working its way out the system and whether there's further downside um, in the NASDAQ, meaning in those tech shares. David, when you have a look at the screen that we have on, uh, or rather the graph we have on the screen right now, it's quite illustrative. Although NASDAQ, which is where much of the action went on, has done very well uh, since the, the COVID-19 pandemics uh, hit, the reversion in the last couple of days has been pretty small, relatively speaking. Yeah. It, it just takes us back in the run-up to, well, where are we now? We're at 11,313. Um, so the run-up is where we were, uh, there we go, at on the 8th of, uh, oh, sorry, 21st of August. So yeah. we haven't really lost that much. Is there worse to come? There might be. We don't know. Alec, this is a, it's a mystery. We don't know the dynamics of these derivative markets. You know, we don't know exposure. Mr. Son can come in and start buying more calls. You know, we don't know what his strategy is. He's come under severe criticism for what he's doing. But, um, you know, this may be this, uh, uh, the asset management company that he wanted to build and buy up. This might be his strategy. So no one's quite sure of, of, of what the ultimate aim of Mr. Son is. But his shares are down about 7% in Hong Kong today, showing the displeasure of his shareholders at uh, what he's doing, uh, which is obviously an incredibly aggressive um, strategy, whatever it is. But he is, he's an outlier. He's a strange man. You know, he does these very, very uh, odd things. So, um, but the market's telling you they're not happy with what the, with the news that they're reading. Well, let's have a look at that share price, the SoftBank yeah. share price, Dave. Uh, in, as you say, in Tokyo this morning, it was yeah. under a, a bit of pressure. I'll just call it up on the screen now. There we go. Uh, whew, that is quite a dip. And this is, the, this is going back for one year. If we have a look maybe in the past three months, we'll give you a better, yeah. perhaps even one month, we'll give you a better view. There we go. So in the past month, uh, it's mm-hmm. dropped in yen. Now, quickly, David, what's that in rands? Five thousand. Don't even ask me to do that. <laughs> but anyway, it's it's certainly year to date, uh, still still above where it started, um, four thousand five hundred yen, and it's now just under six thousand yen. So SoftBank's still done okay, but mm. as you see in that last little dip there, shareholders in this company are getting a little concerned at the mm-hmm. impact. Because I guess, as you've explained, that if you get a unwinding of these uh, these uh, uh, forward or bullish options, yeah. and mm. the puts start coming into play, then then it, it it has the opposite effect that we've seen so far of pushing up the market. This could be melting down the market. It could work that way. So far, according to the Financial Times, you know he's uh, he's made about four billion dollars on his deals, but that's Depends. It's it's um, you know these are unrealized gains, so it depends whether you can realize it. But if people suspect <laughs> you know that the market's going down, it could unwind a lot faster than that, and that four billion can go down to three two very very easily. So I think that's what they're nervous of. But but he's a he's a very strange man. I I just uh, it's it's an odd company. I used to like it because. It was almost um, an Asian, um, you know, Silicon Valley. He was a one-man Silicon Valley, yeah. 
And but but lately things have gone uh, all wrong, and uh, you know started with WeWorks, it started with a whole lot of other issues as well. So I prefer to switch from SoftBank into what is his biggest underlying company was Alibaba. You know, I'd rather go for direct exposure to Alibaba simply because you don't know what he's going to pull out the rabbit, you know, out the hat next. <laughs> well, he's busy. Uh, just just as a little update on that, uh, SoftBank is in the process of selling the stake in Alibaba and selling a number of the other stakes, basically liquidating about $50 billion. These guys don't play small numbers, do they, Dave? He's got a vision fund of $100 billion to play with of which over 50 are sitting in cash. So yeah. if he wants to single-handedly drive up NASDAQ and benefit from it, he, he's also put his own money in. He's guaranteed that if in 10 years' time, the fund that he's created for the equity investing, if that does not show a profit, he will make the difference, make up the difference. So, mm -hmm. As you say, an extra, a very interesting person. But that's, that's all on the buy side, uh, on, on the buy lines really. What do you do now if you own Amazon, Apple, yeah. Tesla, etc., that where Mr. Son has been playing and punting big? I think bite your bottom lip. You know, they're still good businesses. And that's the that's the uh, you know, that's the issue. I um I've been in them for a long time and I you know I've always liked them and I like where they're going. Uh, we've made some money and we're gonna lose a bit of money, but I don't want to lose my position in those shares. I still think that that uh, once we get out, we find that we don't come back in. And that's that's my big worry. I don't know where this is going to go. And I hope that we see one more sell-off day and that's it. It, it. it just works its way out of the system. You know what's very interesting? And I, 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 it's another interesting point that's come up because generally you can hedge yourself by buying puts. In other words, the right to sell the share, not the right to buy a share, the right to sell it to somebody else. The problem is that a lot of these traders have not been able to do that because in March, all the put writers were put out of business when the market cracked 30%. <laughs> so they're still licking their wounds and, and you know, uh, kind of healing their bruises and that. So, so um, you know, that, that's the opposite market. So if you wanted to find a put, you know, like if I – in the situation where you feel the market's very high and you say, can I find anybody who's going to write me a put? In other words, give me a chance to hedge myself on the way to no one's there. They've all gone battered and bruised and taken out by March. So, and short sellers. Market. Short exactly. sellers have also been, been carried out. There were, in fact, the guy uh, who was who starred in The Big Short, uh, Michael mm. Lewis's book, it was a great movie. Uh, Steve Iceman, he uh, was, a, was a very famous short yeah. seller of tesla now yeah. he was selling short selling tesla at 300 dollars, yeah, and after the split they they well anyway um i wonder if he's been taken out or if he was smart enough to get out but even when when even elon musk uh, there's a very interesting story before we we move on to um, a fascinating uh, tale about cape independence elon musk who has been angry with the shorts for a long time about a month ago as the tesla share price was going up tweeted that the price is now a little too expensive, even for him, his own views, and he's, he's the super optimist. So, and you think about it then, so what does he do? He does the logical thing, which any rational person does, and he sells $5 billion of new shares, fresh shares, at this ridiculously overvalued price. I don't know if they have those shares been placed, David, because that was a week or so ago. I, I'm sure they have. 
you know, I, I, and, and it's a brilliant move. You want to be stupid. You want to pay this. Well, fine. Let me use the money. I can use it. Um, you, know, you know, Donnie Gordon was famous for that. Every time the share price was overpriced, he had a rights issue. And he got cheap institutional money. I mean, you know, he, for him, it was very cheap. So, um, and, and Clicks did the same. Clicks did it at, uh, sorry, not Clicks, this game did it about 37 or 38 rand. They're half the price now. You know, I said, you want to be silly? You want to pay up? And you know, institutional chaps couldn't get enough. <laughs> Incredible. Well, I have my own story about that. Uh, in 1999, when I listed MoneyWeb, hmm. they, they were falling over. In fact, there weren't enough shares to place, David, hmm. at a rand. And a year later, after the market had cracked, Old Mutual were giving me their shares back at 17 cents. Yeah. Extraordinary. Yeah. It, it, you, you, just, you just sometimes think, come on, can anyone be that dumb? But anyway, it is what it is. And uh, that's the market. So Donald Gordon, as you said before, uh, had the biggest ever rights issue in the UK just before the 1987 crash. Elon Musk. Might have had the biggest rights issue, or one of the biggest rights issues in the in in the U.S. in the placement of shares just before the Nasdaq Nasdaq takes another knock. But it is well, not the Nasdaq, hopefully, but it's certainly his his own shares. But uh, what an interesting market that we're talking about. But David, this next story is one mm. that really really kind of caught my attention, and we welcome in Phil Craig now. Phil is uh, uh, I just want to make sure that I can get you up on the screen full there we go okay. he's the co we can i can hear we can hear you nice and clear full you're the co-founder of the cape independence advocacy group now those of us who live up north um who, who love coming to the cape even though most cape people say to the Gauteng, is just send us your money next time don't bother to visit at the same time uh, the the um we think that you're part of south africa but it appears as though people in the Cape, or a growing number of people in the Cape, are not so sure anymore. Just tell us where you're coming from, from your own perspective, and why you have uh, are a co-founder of an organisation like that, the Cape Independence Advocacy Group. In other words, secessionists. Sure. Look, and effectively, um, we, you know, we've got, we've got nothing at all against South Africa. I think this is just a question of self-preservation. I think we all understand that the country is in is in dire straits, and uh, we need to to look at where the solutions are going to come from. And uh, you know, we, we've seen since since 1994 that ideologically and politically there is there is a stark. Uh, divide between what the Western Cape wants and and what South Africa wants, and that probably was relatively benign when when South Africa was doing fairly well, uh, but uh, but as South Africa now is 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 getting worse and worse and worse, um, then the people of the Western Cape are, are caught in a situation where they uh, where, where they now don't have uh, they aren't getting the government they're voting for, and uh, and um, so that so they're in a situation where South Africa is, is is dictating the terms, I guess, to the people of the Western Cape. The people of the Western Cape have never given the ANC majority in 26 years, and we have a situation where the party who got 28% of the vote is dictating how the country must be run to the people who got 55% of the vote, and uh, you know that's not much fun. <laughs> but why you? Where's where's your interest in all of this coming from? So, look, I think I'm just an ordinary person who really kind of hoped that other solutions were going to come along and, and they didn't come along. And, and uh, then we're in a situation where somebody's got to step up or, or, or a group of people have got to step up. Um, 
I, uh, I'm, I'm a family guy. I've, I've got young children, a second marriage. Um, you know, I think like a lot of South Africans, I don't want to be in a situation where when I've finished and retired, I'm sitting in South Africa and uh, my children are spread around the world because they just didn't have a future here, you know, and I don't want that for me. And I don't want that for, for other uh, other people living in the Western Cape. In truth, I don't want it for the people in South Africa. Um, but there's not much we can do about that. South Africa is voting, uh, you know, uh, again and again and again for 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 socialist policies, um, and uh, you know I can't change that. But in the Western Cape, we we can try and get the government that we vote for. How uh, th this whole um, analysis that you've done, this poll that you've done, uh, bringing in Gareth van Onselen's uh, um, company, uh, Victory Research. Where did it all start from and, and who paid for it and, and why do you think it was a worthwhile exercise? Before we go into the results, which suggests that it certainly was a worthwhile exercise. Yeah, look. So, so the the Cape Independence movement in general has been around for a for a while, um, but I, I guess that you know it, it's kind of fragmented in terms of there's a, there's the Cape Party, which is a political party, which really hasn't done very well at the the polls. Um, there, then there's a, there's a civic rights organisation. There are two actually, but the, the main one is is Cape Exit. Um, and uh, so so yeah, the, the the movement kind of existed, but there probably wasn't a, a, a sort of uh, yeah strategic. Uh, organization that uh, that really was 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 was, was trying to, to to get a very fact based approach um and from from our point of view we wanted to come in and try and establish into into the uh, into the main narrative you, you know it's not something that was talked about an awful lot into the media and actually there was an awful lot of disinformation around uh, cape independence and and obviously one of the great things about the poll is is that's kind of put an awful lot of myths to bed that you know that, that people were you know they, they were beyond myths you know they were they were taken as facts even though they weren't facts and i think the poll has been helpful in that and and our you know we're a political pressure group so we're not looking for power ourselves we're not really looking for anything out of this we we just want to uh, we want to just change the narrative and and, and get this as a, as a as an option out there and uh, yeah clearly we wanted to demonstrate how popular it really was because people were sort of poo-pooing this as some kind of fringe idea and i think it's clear from the polling that this clearly isn't some fringe idea that just a few idiots want it's it, yeah, it really is a, a mainstream issue um, who polled it you know we we uh, we in terms of who paid for it uh, then uh, look we we managed to raise some uh, some some finance uh, amongst uh, supporters and uh, yeah we 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 managed to uh, well, a number of people were very generous and, and helped us and, and that paid for the poll and what did the poll tell you just give us the the data so I think probably the, the key numbers are so 30, 36% of people in the Western Cape would like to see an independent Cape. So, so just over one in three. Um, 47%, so all but one in two, would like to see a referendum on independence. 53% um, of DA voters would like independence outright. And 64% of DA voters would like to see a, a referendum on independence. So, so I think we, we can fairly we fairly comfortably now say this is this a politically mainstream issue. And the DA, its response? Well, they haven't, we haven't responded formally, um, and uh, yeah, I'm not particularly expecting a, a formal response at this point in time. As an organisation, uh, yeah, we're a political pressure group, so clearly we uh, we have a number of links with the DA, and we talk to them on a regular basis. Um, and I think it's fair to say that Cape Independence certainly isn't the, the, the DA's plan A. And I think historically they would much rather that Cape, yeah, it, it suited them fine to say, listen, nobody really wants this. Um, and yeah, within the, the organisation, there's an awful lot of support for Cape Independence. And we spoke to speak to a lot of people who actually 
privately support it, but publicly there's no endorsement of this. Um, for, for a number of years, the DA just didn't talk about it. As a part of our activities, they have started to get asked about Cape independence on a fairly regular basis now, but they sort of tend to brush it off with, uh, with, with, with something that's you know, kind of a, a bit of a fob off. Um, Look, and how they're going to respond now is going to be interesting because, it, because look, we always maintained that you know, people will say, look, nobody's voting for the Cape Party and therefore nobody's interested in Cape independence. And we always maintained that independent supporters are voting for the DA. You know, fundamentally, people want a DA government. We're not going to get one as part of South Africa. There's only so many times we can keep voting for the DA and not getting it. And we always maintained that the vast majority of independent supporters were also DA voters. And that has been borne out by this poll. You know, 65%, two thirds of independent supporters are DA voters. Um, so look, at some point, they get, you know, they get, they're going to have to engage. And, and privately, they do behind the scenes. You know, they're, they're, they're not coy to engage behind the scenes. I understand it's a, it's, it's a difficult conversation for them to have in public, and they're trying to balance their, their national ambitions with, uh, with their provincial obligations. So what happens in the provincial election that comes along next year? Let's just say that the Freedom Front Plus, who made huge gains in the last election at the sure. DA's expense, take this up as uh, one of their... Uh, perhaps cornerstones of their philosophy. Is it sure. possible then that the DA would would be punished for not listening to its own supporters, given uh, that your or, or on the presumption that uh, your data that you've got from this opinion poll is accurate? Sure. Look, I, we don't have to speculate on that. The, the, we were already in discussions with the with the Freedom Front, and the, and the Freedom Front were very quick to come out and announce that they will be standing on a ticket of Cape Independence. So, so that, that's not a speculation. So, so at the, at the 2021 elections, we know there'll be at least three parties supporting Cape Independence. Um, there'll be the uh, the Cape Party itself. Uh, there'll be the Freedom Front, uh, and then the uh, the Cape Coloured Congress, uh, which is which is the new. Uh, Coloured Party from the Cape Flats, uh, and this will be their first election. So, so definitely there will be uh, some support for 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 Cape independence. Um, it'll be interesting to see for us too what's going to happen to them. I guess that's a bit of an unknown. Um, personally, not so much as an organisation. We're, we're bipartisan, and so we so we so uh, you know our executive committee all voted for different political parties at the last election. But but and I actually am the only DA voter historically. But I'm a DA voter, and I and I hope that uh, the DA will start to at least engage in the conversation, even as a neutral. But I think if the if the DA continues to uh, to, to kind of just brush this off and focus on their own political ambitions I think there will be consequences and as an organization if that's what's happening by by the time of the 2021 elections we will be actively uh, promoting people to vote for for other parties in terms of a, of a protest vote and, and I think and I, and I think there'll be a reasonable level of support for that it's so interesting I'm sure that many people watching this now and by the way uh, <laughs> I usually introduce Stuart Lohman and he usually tells you about how to post the questions and I got too excited with David Shapiro about the SoftBank story, so I haven't said that. Stuart, do you want to just tell us quickly uh, or, or just to tell uh, those in the webinar how to post the questions, our, our business Premium subscribers? Excellent. Thanks, Alec. Uh, the sound and video is obviously perfect because you haven't had one complaint, so that's a good sign. But on the control <laughs> panel, there's little questions, as symbol, all the questions drop down menu. You just put them in there and Alec can pick them up from there. And Alec, I see you, you're going to mention the YouTube channel. I'll also put that under in the same chat bar. 
uh, where people can pick up the webinar post and your discussions. All good. Brilliant. So, so at the bottom of chat bar, Stu's going to put the YouTube uh, channel there. That's where you can listen to the recording of, of the webinar. And the questions is in the little question mark. So just uh, crack away there. Uh, Phil, I, I come from KwaZulu-Natal. So we only voted 49 to 51 to join the Union of South Africa in 1910. Okay, close thing. Uh, and, and we were told that for, for the last outpost of the British Empire and, and, and. Um, and if there was one province that didn't really want to go to the party of the creation of the Union of South Africa, it was that province. Now it appears, uh, 100 years on, or more than 100 years on, that another province is getting to the point where the, the, the motivation is growing. It's interesting because a lot of people watching this are probably thinking, oh, no, this full guy's nuts. So we're never <laughs> going to break up the country. Uh, but it's interesting to, to, to bring back that, that uh, Natal, the colony of Natal, 4951. Close run thing. How does one actually dispel the view that by people, that anyone who wants independence of the Western Cape is a crackpot? Sure. Where's the economic <laughs> argument for it? Well, look, so so look, I think the argument is primarily political rather than economic. Uh, but that said, we have you know, discussed this with a number of economists. And so so um, I think then you just have to start looking for context. So first of all, uh, the Western Cape is one of two provinces that subsidizes the rest of South Africa. So, so it's only Western Cape and, and Gauteng that pay into the system and everybody else draws down from the system. So the, uh, the Western Cape is, is uh, produces 13.9% of South Africa's GDP. Uh, it houses 11.2% of South Africa's population. And when the uh, the government uh, funds are allocated to the province, the Western Cape gets 10.1% of the allocation of provincial funds. So the Western Cape is paying in 13.9% and it's getting 10.1% back. Um, so, so first of all, just at, at face value, yeah, there's a net gain by not being part of South Africa. That's before we start to look at sort of economic policy and the disastrous economic policy that, that South Africa is following. And, and clearly there would be an expectation that the Western Cape would, would, would follow more business and investor friendly policies. Uh, and therefore, there would be a, a benefit from there. And then there's a scale. Um, and the, you know, the, the Western Cape economy, as it currently stands, is equal in size to the economy of Namibia, Botswana and Zimbabwe combined. So, you know, the, the, there's no question of viability. Uh, there's no question that we'll be better off. Uh, and then I think those become sort of secondary issues anyway to the political considerations in terms of being, being able to choose your own policies and, and, and have the government that you want. And obviously, really crucially, as, as can be demonstrated by the current system, not just choosing your own government, but being able to hold it to a Count if it doesn't perform, um, and I think they're the more critical things. But I think there's, you know, there's no question that the, the Western Cape economy would thrive, as, as one economist put it to me. Look, effectively, it would be a, a giant special economic zone for 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 South Africa. You know, you you'd, you now have this kind of freer market, less bureaucracy, uh, investor-friendly territory next door. Um, and whilst the economist in question that lived in South Africa, uh, yeah, they were fairly positive of, of Cape independence, and the argument was, you know. When South Africa sort of you know, gets the, to the to the bottom of the cycle and is, is in deep deep trouble, do you want a wealthy or a poor nation next door? And so uh, yeah, it was an interesting philosophy. Thanks, Paul. It's been really interesting. But uh, practically speaking, let's just say that uh, you are successful and that you get the DA to support you, and sure. and they then believe that there is merit in this argument. What's the next step, and and how does the Cape secede practically? 
Well, look, a, a lot. So a lot of that then then depends on on the on on how South Africa responds to the political will of the Western Cape. Um, you know, and obviously you you would hope that that it goes one way uh, and and that there's just an agreement. Um, but you have to look at, at other countries. So so effectively that there are, there are two outcomes here. There 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 is there is just a respecting of the democratic wishes of the people of the Western Cape. Scotland would be a perfect example of that, where where um, yeah where the where the UK government recognised the people of Scotland. Yeah, had had independent stirrings and granted the referendum, and you know, and it was, and it was, and that would be, I would love to hope that we can get to that situation. Um, if you can't get to that situation, then 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 you end up in a situation where your uh, the, the government has to make a unilateral declaration of independence, and and then it becomes international politics. The international law absolutely allows for for a country to uh, to secede. Um, but it requires then the support of other countries. So then it becomes a game of international politics and, and you're looking for other countries to now recognize the political rights of the Western Cape to, to govern itself as opposed to South Africa's right. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't know which one of those two, two, two situations we would end up with. I would hope for the former. I suspect the latter is probably more likely. Or even we have to get down a fair way down the route to the latter before, before the South African government buckles. But it depends. Obviously, the South African government is becoming less and less that's functional. So, so, so in terms of, you know, at what point does it cease to have the capacity to to, to govern anyway? Um, uh, Professor Kwasmalan from from the University of Pretoria, who wrote a book, that there's no such thing as a supreme constitution, makes the argument that that in many ways the South African government has already ceased to be the government of South Africa. It's abdicated its responsibilities around security. Uh, it's abdicated a lot of responsibilities around education and health uh, and some of economic obligations. Uh, and and citizens aren't expected to, uh, to to live in chaos. And therefore, if there's an absence of government from the formal government, then then another government is entitled to kind of, sort of step into its place. So, but I, yeah, that's an argument, I guess, for for, for the lawyers to to fight rather than me. Wow. Thank you, Phil. We know that civil wars have been fought over less, but uh, I, I think that the, the times are changing and we're certainly seeing uh, all around the world the expression of, uh, of desire to be independent. And let's see what happens in South Africa. Uh, thanks for, for joining us today. David Shapiro, uh, are we moving to the Western Cape because we'll have a, a, a non-socialist government down there? <laughs> I, I love it. I love the story. Full is his uh, his arguments. You can't argue against him. But I just want to know when the storm is coming against the lions. That's going to be an international from now on. I think. <laughs> but, David, don't uh, laugh. You know, <laughs> when the Scots, uh, unfortunately for the Scots, they they had COVID nineteen, which kind of um, uh, queered their pitch uh, for <laughs> their independent <laughs> ideas. They, they realised they were not contributing. In fact, they were the uh, the receivers of, of benefit. Um, but on the other hand, uh, you know, what the point that he was making about the Cape actually making contributions to the rest of South Africa is, is quite strong. It's, it, was a, it was a fringe idea. It's gathering momentum. Yeah. They've now got, uh, they had the cash to go and get someone reputable like Gavin, uh, Gareth von Onselen to, to do the research. Uh, they've got the figures. The DA has got to listen because the DA is in a, in a, a bit of a tricky situation itself. Uh, what if the Freedom Front come out and and uh, and give them a good hiding in the next or get 20% even of the Cape vote? Who knows? So it's it's something that we need to keep keep an idea. But would it hurt South Africa economically if it were to split? Oh yeah. Oh and how? Oh massively. I mean, uh, it's all part. You know, we all integrate. But I I think the Cape 
Are we going to ask Phil after the December tourist season, you know, whether he feels quite the same way without people coming there and, and shopping? And I suppose, in fact, they're going to get a flood mainly from uh, from Gauteng and from that because no one can travel outside. You know, we can't we can't do any international trips, so we're all going to go down to the Cape. That might even strengthen the case, but uh, very interesting. But Alex, you, you know, you mentioned your David, history. David. I I hope mm-hmm. they're going to go. People are also going to go to KZN because it's much more needed in KZN than in Cape Town. You know, the Cape Townians want us just to send us send them our money. In KZN, they welcome us with open arms. Yeah, but you mentioned history. If you you know, if if you, if you go back to the Union of South Africa, Merriman, Bertha, Smuts were all enemies. I mean, uh, particularly Merriman, they became the best of friends after the uh, after the Union of South Africa. But a wonderful history around. About the union, you know, which you uh, which you brought up there, and here we're going to go break it all up again. Forty nine fifty one, David. It was mm-hmm. very close. Natal might have been very, the the, uh, uh, the its yeah. own. It would have been called Kwazulu now. Yeah. I'm sure. Mm. Anyway, let's uh, let's go back to our uh, investment related uh, issues and <laughs> welcome Ernest Kaplan. Uh, Ernest, if you able to switch your Webcam on your 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 microphone. Thanks, I think you worked your mic. You can hear you on the mic. How about your webcam? I think Ernest? the mic's on. It's, the mic uh, is there. Steve. You bombed us a minute ago. There we go. Okay, with your your picture. Love to, lovely to see you, Ernest, and and nice to nice to be okay. talking with you again on a on a business program. Uh, David and I have have been unpacking the whole SoftBank. Uh, option story that pushed up they took they bought according to the financial times four billion dollars worth of options which gave an underlying position of 50 billion dollars that's obviously gone against them although they probably were in the money sufficiently not to have to liquidate but are you seeing this as a risk to tech stocks uh, internationally we'll talk in a moment about local stocks but uh, the international picture i know you do follow it Thanks, Alec, um, and it's wonderful to be on your show. Um, <clears throat> look, I think, you know, I'm not too familiar with what these um, soft bank futures trading would have done to the overall market. I mean, I don't know what percentage of the total market, you know, that represents. But in essence, I mean, I'm looking at it from a, a slightly more of a distant position. Let's look at it and say, are these companies overvalued? And if you look at a lot of them, they're trading at the highest multiples that these companies have ever seen. You could argue that they've got very good long-term growth prospects, given the COVID pandemic, which has shifted a lot of things to digital. But I would say they're a bit high. And um, I don't think they're stratospheric, but I think they're a bit high. I wouldn't be surprised if we see a bit more of a downturn in the weeks ahead. Um, And then perhaps a sideways move. um, And then longer term, say over the next two to three years, I still think many of them are fantastic companies, as David said. So I wouldn't be selling the, the big names. If you try and sell and get back in, you, you you might get it wrong. 
So I think it's better to just stay in some of those really good quality names. Uh, what about Tesla and Apple, though? We've seen a irrational jump in those share prices after the announcement mm-hmm. of share splits, which economically make absolutely no sense uh, to or no difference to the companies. We've even seen on Tesla's uh, perspective uh, behalf, Elon Musk saying the share price is too high. So SoftBank seems to be responsible for pushing that. In my opinion. Oops. Can you still hear me? Now I can hear you. Yes, please. Go ahead, Ernest. Okay. Tesla has become a a cult stock. And so I think the share price is not really representing the, the next year or two's fundamentals. I think the reason why people are investing in Tesla is because they see it's an opportunity to change the world and the way we drive cars, etc. Um, I do know that Tesla was um, was going to be part of the S&P 500 or one of the big indices, and then it didn't. So I think that may have pushed the share up and maybe it will go down a bit. And I think it has come off quite a bit since the... Um, since the, the the share split, but I think longer term, I think you know Tesla is a, a very difficult company to to value because it's it's there's so much uncertainty. One doesn't know how effective their competitors are going to be, say over the next three years or five years, and um, and that's a difficult one. Apple's a different story because Apple's a lot more stable, I guess, and um, they're really making that transition from selling hardware to becoming more of a services company. Uh, um, and, you know, it remains to be seen whether they're going to see the same growth. I personally think there's risk there on the growth side because they've been so reliant on the hardware and it makes up such a huge chunk of that business. So going forward, they're going to have to really grow very fast in the other areas to make up. But they're paying good dividends during share buybacks. So I think it's a good story. Um, and I would just stay in that share. I don't think you're going to do very badly. It's not going to fall off a cliff anytime soon. Mm-hmm. I'm just putting up the Tesla share price. As you can see, it's come from uh, year to date. It was at the equivalent of $86 pre-share split. And it's now $418. So uh, lots of heat yeah. still in that stock, even though it went above $500. Uh, so it's lost 100, lost 20% yeah. of its value, um, but it is still um, on that perspective. Ernest, I also wanted you to talk to us about the the upcoming listing of Bytes UK. It's part of the Altron Group. Uh, I, you know Altron as well as anybody else in South Africa does. Uh, the share price of Altron has done okay recently it went up nicely and it seems to have retraced uh, um, in the last few weeks what is is the market taking account of this listing which could by some analysts views unlock something like 600 million pounds i mean you're talking billions 12 13 billion rands uh, in in value uh, when they do the listing yeah yeah, I, I think, Alec, what's going on with Altron is a great story. Um, they've they've fixed up the business a lot in the past couple of years. They've um, they've tried to reduce costs. They've streamlined things. 
and they've they've actually done a fantastic turnaround. What we're seeing now is that Ultron, as it stands today, is not being valued that highly on the JSE. So to put some numbers to it, they're sitting on an EV EBITDA multiple, which is similar to PE, but it's just using enterprise value and EBITDA um, of 6.1. So the, the multiple reflects, is supposed to reflect the future growth. So I think, you know, and, and also the, the general sort of economic outlook and, and the general sense in South Africa, which is very negative right now. So I think, you know, Eltron being a, a, an interesting company um, doesn't get a good valuation. Now, what they're going to do is they're going to try list Bytes UK um, on London Stock Exchange. Now, Bytes UK is a phenomenal company. It's, it's amazing. They've grown their gross profit at a compound rate of 25% for 10 years. I mean, that's phenomenal. And if you look at the Ultron numbers, it's really three pillars to Ultron. You've got one third is Bytes UK, one third is NetStar, and one third are the rest of the businesses. So Bytes UK for the last year or two has been the predominant grower inside Ultron. If you took out Bytes UK, the rest of Ultron wouldn't look so good. So what they're trying to do is list Bytes UK in London and hopefully they can get a multiple um, or the market to view it um, in a manner that's similar to what they would view other similar companies in the UK. The one good reference point for it is a company called Softcat, which is also a distributor of um, technology, which is which is what Bytes UK is essentially. Um, is trading on an EV EBITDA multiple of about twenty three times now. So when you compare the group here in South Africa at five times and Softcat at twenty three. If they can get somewhere in the middle, say 10 to 15, then there's really a, a decent story here. Because um, if they manage to do that and manage to pull it off, you could get quite a bit of upside. You need to, however, once that happens, you need to remember that the local business, the, what's left after you've taken out Bytes UK, will probably be less attractive because it was a good rand hedge, it was growing fast. So when you take that out, the rest of the businesses have a lower growth profile. So the, the multiple might drop on the less uh, on the rest of it. But if you factor that all in, it looks like there's, 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 there's pretty good upside um, in, in Eltron. And I think that's what we're waiting for. We don't know if the listing will take place and if it will be successful. But I think in the next month or few weeks, we'll probably get some feedback. Very interesting looking at the graph that we have on screen here. 2016, uh, Altron's share price is 490. So nice long-term graph. You would have done extremely well if you bought it in 2016 and 2385 today. But it has come down from 2655. So uh, there is, a, a, I guess, a resuscitation in 2020 of this idea that bites UK will be separately listed. What I do find interesting here, uh, Ernest, and I'd love to get your insights in it, 
is it Robbie Fenter, mm. uh, who's who really is a class act. Uh, I know Robbie well, have known him for many, many years. He's been running the uh, the overseas operations, and he be, would probably be uh, also quite respected as a CEO if he's going to be the CEO. I, I don't know. Is that the uh, the plan? Do you think? No, no. Um, <clears throat> sorry. Um, I don't think that's the plan at all, Alec. Um, Robbie's actually um, not as, I mean, he's involved and he's, and he's based in the UK as far as I understand, and he is looking over things, but he's certainly not um, running the day-to-day -day operations of Bytes UK. Um, so I think the plan is that the two gentlemen who have been at the helm of Bytes UK for many years will continue to to do so for a couple of years at least that's at least the way i see it but let's wait and see what what happens if they do manage to be successful um which is probably going to be imminent because they had a roadshow a few weeks ago in the uk and um, the feedback was that well the feedback to us at that point um, from management was that you know obviously they're only going to list the business if there was an interest in the company based on the roadshow, they're using a, a broker in the UK. So let's see what happens, and then they will have to put out um, documentation and a, and, a, and a prospectus, etc. And then we can we can look at it and, and see what they're planning. But I don't think Robbie's going to be running it. Mm -hmm. John Hardy asks the question. He says, "How can we participate in the Bytes UK listing now?" So that's a good question, John. Um, I think the answer is we can't. Um, the 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 Bytes UK portion will actually be dual listed, so it'll be listed in the UK in on London Stock Exchange, but it will also be listed on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange um, as a as a secondary listing. And the reason for that is that the Eltron shareholders at the moment, which make up some of the big sort of uh, fund managers in South Africa, they can't swap their Eltron shares or, or, or get or, or, or get um, Bytes UK shares in London because of exchange control. So I think the reason why they have the local mirror listing is because those local shareholders will get Bytes UK shares listed here. And then that will probably track the the UK um, one overseas. So I think you just got to wait, and you'll probably be able to to buy it here. Um, as for buying it overseas, I think unless you're part of the roadshow or part of the institutional investors that are being targeted, you'd have to just wait for the first day of IPO. Or can you buy Altron shares today and then participate that way? You can, but as I say, if you buy Ultron shares here, you aren't going to get Bytes UK shares. I mean, I stand to be corrected, but I'm about 95% sure that a South African investor here will get the Bytes UK um, shares listed here in Joburg. You won't, it's not a way you can, you can take your money offshore that way. You you, mm. you 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 know it, it will get um, you you'll get given the local shares at least that's how I understand it. I mean it, it might be the mechanics might work out differently, but that's from from my take on it. I think that's what's going to happen. 
But just to understand that uh, as we close off on this, if you buy Altron shares today and they list Bytes UK in uh, Bytes in the UK, as an Altron shareholder, you presumably would get shares in in the business that they are splitting off. You you can't just give it away for nothing. Yes, but you would you would get shares in Bytes UK listed in on the JSE. So they're going to do two listings. Okay, Ernest. Good yeah. talking with you. Thank you Thank again. You. For, uh, Thanks. Uh, would you buy Would you buy Altron on the basis of this listing? I would. Um, I said at twenty rand, it could be worth in the region of twenty six rand, um, and I can't see why. If the market um, sentiment is correct, why it won't be easily twenty six to thirty. I mean, it it could easily be. The problem is you have no way of figuring this out because it all ba- is based on what the sentiment is at the time and and how that share trades uh, in the in the first couple of months. So, but I I think it looks good. I mean, it looks good to me. So twenty four bucks, Ernest says uh, upside there to around thirty rand. There we go, John. That's the way that you can participate directly. Lovely uh, seeing you again, Ernest, and look forward to your participation. Thanks. Uh, in the future. And uh, our last uh, participant today or panelist today is uh, Sean Pesh. Or jo- Sean, how do you pronounce your, your name? Uh, is it Peshe or Pesh or uh, have I? Uh, <laughs> Alec- out, yeah. We've known each other Alec- a long time and I, I can't remember that. <laughs> you know, it, that's an interesting question because I grew up as uh, Sean Peshe, but my children over here, there's obviously a lot more French. And, um, and so that when they went to school, they were just you know, Jenna and Anthony Pesh. And so uh-huh. kind of, <laughs> that's how it kind of works. So um, it doesn't matter, you know, either way is fine. But many, uh, yeah, thanks, Alec. Good to, good to be on the show and thank you for the invite. Yeah, many South Africans uh, would know you from years gone by, uh, from the the, 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 uh, the way, I mean, not just that, that uh, you and I have had lots of conversations uh, on in public and, and in private, but elsewhere as well. How long have you been in the UK and following global markets? So, Alec, I came over here in um, in 2001, and uh, you know, interesting time indeed. In fact, uh, I was we, we we started a little hedge fund. I was with Decillion at the time, and we we had a hedge fund myself and uh, my good friend and colleague at the time, Richard Pitt, and we were busy marketing the fund during 9/11. So it, there were certainly wild markets, um, and uh, it's been an interesting time. And you know, it was really coming over here on a, a two-year have a look and see, and that was back in 2001. So we've been over here for going on 20 years, I guess. So, um, but all our families back in South Africa, I travel back regularly to to see them, or did, and and also lots of clients in South Africa as well. So and, you know, and Ranmore. The name and Randall. Well, I spent five wonderful years at Orbis, and but it got to the point where I felt I wanted to paddle my own canoe, and so I left um, and again teamed up with uh, with Richard, who was at Blue Alpha at the time, and uh, and they seeded the the investment, and so we started that in 2008, beginning of 2008, which again was a challenging year. Halfway through 2008, we actually had a little hedge fund that we were managing then. 
Uh, and then the market started falling so fast, we thought, well, I've just come out of the long-only space. Maybe we should start a, a long-only fund, which we did in the back half of uh, back end of 2008, caught the last sort of bit of downdraft, um, and uh, been going since then. And then Blue Alpha sold some years ago, and uh, so it's now myself and my small team, and and we sold Geron. Um, certainly challenging times as you know for value investors. You mentioned Pete Fillion. Pete cycled out to my office a couple of years ago when he was traveling over here, and we got together and we we joked at the time. We thought this feels like a value investors supporters group that we're forming. You know, <laughs> <laughs> only two of you <laughs> left. <laughs> and, that, and that was before the underperformance this year. So I think uh, another beer with Pete is long overdue. So is there value uh, or more interest now in value stocks, given this incredible run that we've seen on the more on the other side of the coin? In other words, the growth stocks. Are you able to, A, keep your head above water in your performances, and B, starting to see other people who, who are also – uh, looking for contrarian approaches? Yeah, and Alec, I think that's a that's a great question because often what happens is when you mention you know, that you're a value investor, it conjures up images of you owning steel companies and paper mills and boring old, you know, industrial revolution type stocks. And and I don't think that is the case. And and I, you know, certainly if you look at the the value index, MSCI World Value Index, and you and you see how it is comprised. Um, some 22% is financials, and obviously a large part of those would be U.S. financials um, and and U.S. banks primarily. So you know there's there, and energy stocks another huge component. So you can understand why the value space is underperformed because energy has been dealt a big shock. Everybody's uh, you know in 2008 we had the financial crisis and 2011 the European crisis etc. But one doesn't have to own those companies. I mean all we try and do is we just try and look at a business as though you know, a sensible business person would look at it, like a private equity investor, and say, and the first question a, 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 a great business person would ask, and without putting words in his mouth, I mean, I think of you know, investors like uh, Mr. Brian Joffe and those kind of industrialists, is they ask, well, how long is it going to take me to get my money back? And what has mm -hmm. got to go right for me to do that? And how much am I going to lose if I get it wrong? And so that's what we try and do. And I mean, I'll give you a I'll give you a great example at the moment. We, um, uh, you, you know, we've got, if you look at, well, let's look at this. Look at Amazon. And you go, well, what, what drove Amazon's results last quarter? Because everybody owns Amazon. I think some, I think it's the top, it's in the top 10 of some 40% of hedge funds out there. There's a, there's a great website I'd, I'd encourage you to go and have a look at called Whale Wisdom. And they, they mm -hmm. go through all the 13 Fs and have a look. And, and if you look there and you look at, you know, what percentage of funds have Apple in their top 10 and Amazon in their top 10? It's, it's 30 to 40 percent. And you say, OK, well, what drove Amazon's results? Was it was it web? Was it the Amazon Web Services? No, those were that was quite challenging. What really drove the results was grocery. OK, they kept talking about how their grocery, the online grocery division was doing so well. And so you go, well, that's that's great. But when I look at the food and staples retailing space in the MSCI World Index, it makes up one and a half percent. In fact, it's less than one and a half percent. And half of that would be Walmart and Costco. So then you say, well, if that is what's going on, how the how the grocery retailers do? They're doing really well. I mean, you've got a company like Kroger, which is in our, our top 10. Kroger's it's, it's one of the largest supermarkets chain in the US, and it's trading on 12 times earnings and revenue's growing. 
And profits, more importantly, profits are going up. And why are profits going up? Because in the past, in recent years, it's been this huge multi-decade shift to eating out of home, eating at restaurants and quick service places, etc. And all of a sudden that turned on its head and people are now preparing more meals, you know, internally they've got more money to spend because you don't have to pay the margins, etc. Um, and uh, and so then you say, okay, well, well now we, but now they've been battling against the discounters, but the discounters have smaller stores, it's harder to socially distance in smaller stores, they don't have the same online offering, um, you know, you don't want to queue around three car parks to go and get your food, fruit and vegetables at one store and your cleaning materials at another. So there's, there's some fundamental, and so promotional spend has been less, et cetera. So you've got these businesses which are doing really well on 12 times earnings. And the reason that, that, that they haven't run hard, I would guess, is A, they're so small in the index and so much money is flowing into ETFs these days. Okay, and and B, people think this is a this is a, a, a short term phenomenon, and I don't think it is because I think when people when the market opens up, as we've seen in places like Germany, people are not rushing back to restaurants, and even if they are, there are fewer restaurants to rush back to. So you know, in tough economies, you, you don't go out and uh, and and eat in supermarkets. And I mean, remember growing up, I mean, you know, we used to go to restaurants once or twice a year for a birthday. And then it became quite a regular thing. So maybe we're going to go back to that. But then I look at it and I say, okay, so I've got a, I've got great, I've got the same growth factors that are driving Amazon, but on 12 times earnings, not on 100. And and what happens if it is a short, um, a short-term phenomenon? Everyone does go back to restaurants. Well, how much am I going to lose? I'm not going to lose that much. And so that's why I think value investing makes so much sense. And uh, and and you know, and that's why you know, I'm a committed value investor. But it's been tough. It's been tough when you stand back and you and you look at Zoom and you go, hang on, Zoom's a hundred billion. And of course, I was I have a young teenage son and he's you know fascinated by Tesla. And the one thing we don't own is a Tesla. We've got a, um, a Mitsubishi. And um, and and but if you look at Tesla and he goes, yeah, but Dad, it's you know a great story and great cars and all the rest. And I said, okay, but and let's put it in South African rand terms. Okay? Tesla's worth three hundred and seventy billion dollars. And they earned 100 million last quarter, and their revenue was down 5%. So imagine if I tried to to market a product around South Africa, saying this is a great savings investment. You give me 370,000 rand, and I'll give you 100 rand a quarter. I mean, who on earth is going to take you know take up that offer? Um, but of course, everybody thinks no. But but Tesla's the new phenomenon. It's gonna it's gonna do well. Yeah, but BMW spent five times what Tesla does in research and development. And are you really going to take a bet that the German engineers at BMW and Porsche and the ones at Volvo are going to just allow Tesla to eat their lunch? I don't think so. And so if you get Tesla wrong, you know, you're going to lose a lot of money. And when I put a LinkedIn article up on LinkedIn last night, just about Cisco, and I think there are a lot of parallels there where back in 2000, you know, you had John Chambers, a phenomenal visionary mm. and amazing manager. And, he, and he's, sorry. he's from Texas. He's and, from Texas, uh, exactly. I, well, I, I met him in a, in a queue once, and he said uh, he was drinking Diet Coke. It was 6.30 in the morning. And I said to him, sure, isn't it a bit early to be drinking Diet Coke? And he said, well, in Texas, you know, we hunt and we fish and we wake up early in the morning, and we <laughs> need to keep our, keep, keep our eyes open. So, yeah, quite a, quite a humble um, – he, he had a big role in our data, which you remember from South Africa. Correct. But just, just without going into too much detail there, 
The one yes. I want to ask you about is Warren Buffett getting out of Wells Fargo because there's the ultimate value investor. And Wells was his biggest stock. Now he's cut down to a very small shareholding and it's almost like he's, he's going to be dropping it entirely. Is that a, a vote against banks being an area where value investors are falling over themselves to say that you should be buying and in, increasing your, your shareholding there? Or is, it, is he seeing something else now that he's moved into Apple, for instance, and his, his eyes have been opened at the potential of the, of the tech sector? I'm not going to drag you in there, Sean, but I'd love to get your view on, on why Warren's selling his, his Wells shares. Well, I mean, Alec, I think those are just great questions. Um, and the first thing is, I mean, U.S. banks, we don't own, I mean, we've got some Bank of New York in the portfolio, but that's mainly because of their, um, you know, their custodian business. The, the challenge with U.S. banks is that, is that you've got, uh, first of all, they're worth hundreds of billions. You know, you, you look at the likes of Commerce Bank, the second biggest bank in Germany. And it, at one stage, when we first bought it, it had a smaller market cap than Capitec. And this is the second largest wow. bank in the fifth largest economy. So, so you compare, you know, I think of now it's probably got a market cap of about 7 billion euros. It's, it's a rounding error compared to the U.S. banks. But you look at the U.S. banks um, and they've benefited from high interest rate margins in the past, which the European banks haven't. Okay, those have now shrunk significantly. They don't have a social safety net to the extent that Europe does. And so what's going to happen when everybody's no longer receiving these state and federal benefits uh, what's going to happen to their credit cards? We look at the the mortgage debt in the U.S. It's stratospheric. Look at the um, the car loan debt in the U.S. It's off the charts. And so, would I want to be have exposure to the U.S. consumer at this point? And then you look at the it's a service related economy, and you look at how many jobs have been lost in the airline sector and the restaurant sector, etc. Uh, and then you add to that the shale losses. You know, U.S. banks is not somewhere I'd go, and that's one of the challenges I think. For people who want to get exposure to value investing these days, they think they might think, oh, well, I'm just going to go and buy a value ETF. Mm-hmm. Well, if you do that, you better understand that 22% of your money is getting exposed to banks, largely US banks. And so that's why I think this is quite an exciting time for active managers and for value active managers, because there's very few, I mean, you, I don't know of any ETFs which are value, but without banks and without energy, et cetera. So, uh, but, but the other interesting thing, is your friend Mr. Bristow and and um, Warren's move into Barrick, and we have we have quite you know we have a large holding in gold stocks in the portfolio because you know I think those um, things are getting better for those companies. And if you look at the gold price, might be up thirty percent in dollars, but it's up sixty percent in Turkish lira, and there's some Turkish mines out there, and it's up you know forty percent in um, well in fifty percent in rands, and it's up in Aussie dollars, and it's up in Canadian dollars even more than the dollar. So, so I think gold companies are very interesting. So that for me was the most interesting one um, was his, yeah. And, and then of course with Wells Fargo, you have company specific issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, certainly, certainly interesting. Certainly interesting. Sean, we could go on all day. Uh, it's, it's great talking with you again. Thank you for, for explaining a few real home truths there that uh, a value investor doesn't mean you just go and buy banks. Uh, that there are value banks and there are banks that you wouldn't touch. So Warren isn't uh, abandoning the team by uh, dropping out of Wells Fargo. Uh, And uh, also from your perspective, we can see that uh, certainly being based in London has given you a a view on the world 
rather than sometimes when we are in Johannesburg or Cape Town, uh, the view is a little little narrower. Um, but we look forward to talking to you again soon yeah, in the near future, you. and then you can play your drums for us. Could you do that? Last <laughs> time round. Get them I ready on the side. Yes, rather than a musician would have been a bit afraid. <laughs> Thanks so much, Alex. Thanks, Sean. Lovely talking with now. you. And, and you. Cheerio then. Uh, oh, before you go, before you go, before you go, yes. I see Janet Curran, uh, final question. Actually, we've overrun our time already, but she says, what's your view on Cisco Systems? Is it a value investment now? Well, well, have a look at my LinkedIn article. Is it a value? You know, things have changed. Um, and one of the things which which challenges growth companies is lots of competition. There's now lots of competition. Um, and, uh, and we don't currently own Cisco. Um, uh, I think they, they've got some challenges out there. Um, so that's, that's all I'll say at the moment. So no, we don't, I'm, I don't own Cisco. I prefer, I prefer okay. owning companies where conditions are improving and revenue is growing and I don't have to pay a crazy price for it. So I don't have to pay, it looks like I don't have to pay a crazy price for Cisco. But revenue is not growing, and uh, and I think they're under un, you know, challenging times. Sean Pish uh, giving us his views. David Shapiro, before we close off, uh, from your perspective, quickly, are you back in the value camp? You know, I just like good companies, <laughs> and and uh, Sean is mentioning Kroger. It's a good company. You know, companies like Home Depot, Lowe's, think. Just basically good companies. If you can get them at a good prices, that's all the more better. But I don't, I don't uh, not look at tech companies as well, simply because uh, sometimes evaluations might be stretched. You know, as long as they're good businesses that are going to grow in the next three, four, five years. In other words, double-digit uh, earnings growth. I'm happy to go for them. So I like a blend between uh, the different classes, growth and value, and you can find it. But I agree on the, I agree on the bank side of it. It's looking very tight there, and uh, you know, when 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 you borrow money at zero and you lend it out at zero, there's not much margin. <laughs> you can't really make money out of that. I think I think what the rest of us can learn from you and Sean in that conversation is that you just got to do your homework. Don't take anything on face value. Do your homework. Learn more about the company, and. Uh. In time, you will get. You, you can't learn enough. Warren Buffett still goes to bed with annual reports every mm. night, and uh, and that's that's what makes this such a fascinating mm. world. And thank you, David. Another fascinating program. Well, that's uh, that's us for this week. We look forward to being back with you on the uh, in on on Rational Radio next Monday. Remember, when you sign up, when you register for Rational Radio as a Business Premium subscriber, you will get an automatic update to let you know when to come in uh, and who are who is on the program, who our guests are. I hope you've enjoyed today's program. Uh, I think that there weren't that many questions again this week. Perhaps I need to prompt you a little earlier or uh, you, I know last week there were lots of questions that we never got around to. but. Great conversation anyway. Stu, just to confirm, uh, we will, you have got the uh, YouTube channel at the bottom there. When is it likely that uh, that the uh, recording will be up? Excellent, thanks, Alec. Yeah, the, as you see, the YouTube channel there. Uh, it takes a couple of hours, Alec. We just need the video itself to be processed online and then we'll get it up as soon as possible. So the next couple of hours will be a good time to take a look if you want to repeat. Brilliant. Thanks, Stu. Thanks, everybody, for being with us. Until the next time. I'm Alec Hogg. Cheerio.